Well, hello and welcome to episode number 356 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show, BA says goodbye to their baby bus. We see the arrival of a new low-cost airline and we take a look at a shiny new Airbus cabin. In the military news this week, the Black Hawk is down and French military jets cut power to a whole village by flying too low. So joining me over across the village from me in the PTUK Master Suite studio is, of course, Matt Smith. See, I remember when Bungie was referred to as a town because it had things like banks and, and all that kind of thing. You know, I, was just like, I, know, I know villages with better facilities than us now. <laughs> we, do, we, we do have a cash point, but it took us a whole year to get it. Well, that's true. Village, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, All hail the co-op. Yeah. I know. How are things with you? All good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing to report, really. No, not not really anything very exciting going on. Uh, not that I can talk about on here, anyway. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Moving swiftly on. And uh, back with us again this week is, of course, the man who has a beautiful, shining, gleaming banana on his driveway. I beg your pardon? It's, it's Neville Bounds. <laughs> yes, I do. Although it's a, bit, it's a bit scruffy at the moment. It's not been washed for a week. Um, but it went out for an outing today to take Mrs. Nev to Stoke Mandel Stadium, not to do a few laps of the track, but oh. to have her <laughs> Pfizer vaccine. Yay! A big result, and uh, they've got it all sorted out nicely. I think all the people around the country have done a great job of uh, doing all the logistics, and it's a really well-oiled machine. So, you know, top marks to the NHS and all the volunteers that are helping. Actually, I I have news on that front as well, actually, because both myself and mother are off to go and get our jabs tomorrow. So there you go. Ow! Sorry. Right. Okay. (laughs) I look forward to hearing the reports from that. Matt, because I right. know what Gemma, Gemma said well, after she got hers. So. Oh, well, oh, Gemma's had yeah. one, has she? Oh, I didn't realise yes. that. Oh, NHS staff, oh, my I boy. See. NHS right. staff. Yes. Saving the planet and all that. I know, I yes. know. So, joining us uh, from his stately manor over across the pond in the glorious Charlotte is, of course, our military expert, Armando. Ah, uh, Charlotte, the Queen City. Hey, don't let these guys fool you. For us foreigners, anybody that's been to Bungie, I think it's a beautiful little village. Oh, yes, yeah, but it, no, but it used to be a town, Armando. That's the point I'm trying to make. It used to be a town. Anyway, yes. Oh, yeah, well, it's all indifferent to us. I mean, I just took a bunch of pictures and walked around for about an hour looking at your pretty little churches. And <laughs> wow, you managed to do that for a whole hour. I'm impressed. Wow. I was so- lost. So but have was, have you been uh, have you been flying this week, Armando? Zero, zero <gasps> flying. Weather has been terrible. Anybody who lives on the East Coast, well, really anywhere in America right now, is just suffering from terrible, terrible weather. We've had three storm systems, just back to back to back: snow, ice, rain, clouds, just a whole lot of nothing. Even school was out this week, so kids didn't go to school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I actually, uh, there's a question in the chat room here from Jacob Darlington Browns, which uh, John, I'm going to get you on. He wants to know how many people actually live in Bungie. There you go. So, uh, John, that'll be your project Me, for the next couple of minutes. Max. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, about six. Uh, of us, Mama Smith. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Mama Smith. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Uh, <laughs> we have got a very special guest joining us this week. And uh, our guest this week uh, started out fulfilling her childhood ambition of becoming a flight attendant at 18 years old and 
completed 16 years experience in the sky as a commercial and VIP flight attendant on privately owned aircraft, looking after various members of royalty, heads of state and global celebrities. She's also flown worldwide and lived in various countries, including Russia, Saudi Arabia, Norway, Spain and spent time on the Isle of Man. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show this week our guest, Rebecca Dean. So hello, Rebecca. Welcome onto the show. Hi. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Rebecca, how are things uh, with you in in the world? Very, very, very boring at the moment. Um, Since leaving aviation, um, I work in the beauty industry, so we've been completely shut down. So, yeah, it's uh, it's very frustrating. The dog's getting shorter and shorter because I just walk him all the time. And I'm getting fatter because <laughs> I just sit on the sofa and watch Netflix and eat food. <laughs> no, that's not that's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah, I can, think of, yeah. Got I can think of worse things to do. Well, yes. But, so, we're going to have a good chat with you in just a bit, uh, Rebecca. We're going to have a chat about your career and uh, your, some of the interesting stories you've had, because I know you've got some very interesting stories indeed. But um, we're going to acknowledge everyone in the chat room this evening. So a big hello to, let's have a look at the list. We have got Richard Adams in the chat room. We've got Nick Codling. Hello to you, Nick Codling. Uh, Auntie Liz over in Canada. Hello to you, Liz. Uh, Stephen H. Jacob Darlington Brown over in Australia. Hello to you. That must be incredibly early again where you are, uh, Jacob. Uh, Or late, one of the two. Uh, Lane Street. Can't do a show without having Lane in the uh, chat room. Uh, hello to Sturman as well. Hello to you, Gareth. And uh, we've got uh, Micah as well in the chat room. Hello to you, Micah. Mark Priestley as well. And APG Show has Uh-oh. joined us in the oh, chat no. as well. So we don't need to be on our best We're, we're being monitored closely. We're being monitored. Yes. But yeah. to be fair, I, I was monitoring their show um, the other night. So right. Okay. Back. Yeah. And, and uh, hello to Pip as well. Oh, hello. my goodness. Graham. And Graham Hayes. Oh, it's filling yeah. up nicely, isn't it? Yeah. It's filling up nicely. Mm. But uh, have we got any weekly, any, any weekly roundups this week? Any stories that have been uh, on someone's minds this week at all? Anyone? No? I was a bit sad to hear about uh, React being cancelled. Yes. That, that was official this week, wasn't it? That was very yeah. sad news. Yeah, Jonathan Warner uh, sent, I think you think he sent us all a text, didn't he, a message he this did. week to yes, say that been, React has been cancelled officially mm-hmm. for this year. But the Malta Air show has apparently not been cancelled and they've already signed up the uh, Swiss... F16 Falcon display team uh, to fly at the uh, air show this year in September. So whether or not that will go ahead? Well, I mean, September's a long way away, isn't it? So there is every Mm. chance that we could be uh, cooking with gas, shall we say, by the time we get to September. Let's hope. Well, here in the US, I I believe Sun and Fun is still going. That's going to be the first real big event. That's in April of this year, so down in central Florida. And uh, as far as I know, AOPA... Um, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, they're still planning all of their uh, flying, their regional flying. They're just going to look different. And I was in Oshkosh a couple of weeks ago, and EAA is happening as, as far as we know. Um, again, just going to look a little bit different. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that'll be a big one, won't it, if, if we go to yeah. – um... If we, if, if, we do, if we do have uh, Oshkosh go ahead, that'll be a real sort of big head, wouldn't it? Big bonus. For, we're, we're all missing their shows. Everyone's missing their shows especially uh, all us have geeks across the globe. So fingers crossed, get to the middle of the year. Let's see what happens. So Rebecca, 
Becca, thanks for joining us uh, again on the show tonight. It's great to great to have you on. Um, you. So we'll uh, we'll start off then. Well, suppose we'll ask the the all important question. I suppose where uh, where and when did your uh, aviation career start? So um, it started with Virgin actually, but not Virgin Atlantic. Um, I'd applied to every single airline that was imaginable, and I got knock back after knock back you're too young come back to us when you're 20 blah 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 and eventually um i was accepted for interview with virgin but it was for their short haul company so i flew with virgin express and um and that was really it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun um and very soon on into my career with them they wanted some crew to go out and um work from their Madrid base, a brand new base that they were setting up. So um, off I went, did that. I was, I was uh, about 19, um, 18, 19, and had a lot of fun. We, um, we only worked 10 days a month, so it was brilliant. Yeah, we had this unwritten rule. It's like nobody ever goes sick unless you are absolutely dying. And then that way, we all got loads of time off. Um, but we, did, we, we, we would fly, we'd report at about midday, and we'd go um, Madrid, Rome, Rome, Barcelona, Barcelona, Rome, Rome, Madrid. And we'd land back about midnight. I'd hop on the metro, get changed, bung a bit more lithium and go clubbing. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a good life. And then after that, um, I came back to London and flew out of Heathrow. And um, I went for the position of purser. And I was really lucky that, I managed to land that one, so to speak. And uh, yeah, it was Purser. And then from there, I saw a small advert in the uh, Flight International magazine whilst I was um, positioning on a Virgin flight. And it, that's how I got into the private side of things. They were advertising um, for a small but exciting company and they wanted a stewardess. So that was my in, really. I didn't have a clue what it was when I when I joined. I thought maybe I'd be nipping to Paris a few times a day, but it was um, it was completely different. So you had your brief stint with commercial aviation, obviously, as you said, with Virgin. Um, obviously, you had your training and stuff to do with that, particular you know, with the commercial side of uh, of you know the flight attendant side. How different was the, uh, the the training, obviously, when you moved into the VIP training? You were on different aircraft, obviously, um, private jets. Yeah. But... So with corporate or VIP flying, there's all sorts of different aircrafts, um, you know, smaller aircrafts, larger aircraft. So you'd be trained on that aircraft, just like when you're commercial. Um, fundamentally, the safety side of the training is is you know, the same, just as important and as in-depth as with a commercial. Um, but the service side of it is very, very in-depth. You, you're you taught um, your complete silver service. I was taught how to prepare and serve caviar and lobster properly. Um, yeah, so there's a, you, it's, it's a real, that side of things, that's the, to the to the passenger that's the main thing that we're there for is their service but obviously as we know as crew we're there for their safety so um going on to the kind of aircraft that you've flown on in your career 
uh, Becca. What kinds of uh, aircraft, for the benefit of obviously the av geeks who who listen and watch a show, um, have you flown on uh, in your career? So obviously the Globals is obviously one of your favourites, but um... yeah. So um, my first private jet was a Gulfstream. I was based out of um, Stansted with that one, and yeah. So then I've been on uh, so two Gulfstreams, um, couple of Globals, Falcon, Challenger. A319, A340, and I had a very short stint um, as a freelancer on a 707. But it was so, it was literally a couple of flights that I feel very privileged to have flown on the 707. Wow, Mondo, what do you reckon of that? That's quite the list. I didn't know there was that many private A340s running around. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you brought up some good things. My brother, uh, was a similar uh, path to yours. He was an airline pilot for a long, long time, and then he discovered the world of private aviation and corporate aviation. And he's been he's been doing that for the last twenty years almost now. After he left commercial, so he's always got some pretty good stories about about the the cabin crew and the flight attendants having to do some shopping. So you you guys do you have to do your own shopping for each client? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Um... Most of the time, you're catering to a particular passenger that you're very used to. So I, I worked as their personal flight attendant, so you have to get to know all their likes, their dislikes. But yeah, we, we, could, we could be anywhere in the world and you'd have to get a particular flower, a particular meat or fish or vegetable. And, you know, you could, the, the, the lengths you'd go to to try and find this this particular thing um you'd be chasing down chefs of various restaurants and but but some most of the time they you got to know your clients really well so you knew what they'd want but then they might chuck a curveball at you sometimes i remember i did all the i planned all the menu everything was done i was ready to go and um the passenger walked on with this massive vacuum-packed raw fish. It, its eyes and everything were still on it. And I thought to myself, what on earth do you want me to do with that? Any Anyone that knows me knows I hate cooking. I like preparing stuff and, you know, pre um, presenting it. But when it comes to cooking, and this dead fish was looking at me, and I thought, yeah, well, I, I, can't, be, I can't be serving that up. But we'd, we'd run around, we'd go to all sorts of um, supermarkets, whether it be a high-end supermarket or just an everyday supermarket, and you'd, you'd pretty much have to get everything, yeah. Well, it, and what kind of – so we all – I mean, very few of us has had the opportunity to actually fly in a private or a corporate jet. So what kind of, what kind of people – are the clients what are they, are they nice are they where are they going what are they doing so the majority of my clients um were either business business men or women um or celebrities heads of state um and i have to say that most of them were really lovely they treated you with a lot of respect and you 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 did become quite close to them and their families you're sort of part of the household staff really um if you were doing a freelance then you wouldn't you wouldn't get to know them very, very well you might only have one flight or a there and back 
but the majority of my clients, I was I was a sole flight attendant, or there'd be two of us, and we'd work opposite shifts. Um, so yeah, you got to know them, and the majority of them were really lovely, you know, normal, down to earth. Just got a hell of a lot more money than, than the rest of us. So is there is there any particular? I mean, obviously you can't mention all the all the various people, the famous people you've worked with. Is there any kind of people that that um, our listeners will kind of think, oh wow, really? Well, that, that I've flown. That you've flown with, yeah. Um, yeah. So I can I can I'll reel off a few. So um, I've flown, um, and some of them are a bit controversial. So <laughs> yeah. So I was um, Muhammad Al Fayyad flight attendant um i've flown michael jackson um good story about having dinner at the ritz with him um in paris uh mariah carey jennifer lopez um and then uh flown some politicians um carl lagerfeld i flew him once he was interesting um who else billy billy piper she was fun (laughs) And I've flown Kofi Annan as well. Um, yeah, so quite a few. Quite you, a got, few. you got me with J-Lo and Mariah Carey, I'm just going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. they, and they were really lovely, actually. Don't believe everything you read in the press. They were really nice. Actually, uh, Lane's got a great question here in the chat room. He's asking, um, and this, coming from a nervous passenger like myself, have you ever had any scary moments in flight? Um, yeah, I had... Um, there was one moment, and I'm actually quite proud of this moment, but um, we had smoke in the flight deck once coming out of oh um, Cape Town. And uh, so that was that was quite scary. And we, we did a, um, a rapid descent, um, and I had to get my portable oxygen. I had to brief the, brief the passengers. Um, but the reward for that was... Um, was brilliant because when we when we landed everything was fine um we did have smoke in the flight deck but it 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 sorted itself out i'm still here to tell the tale but um when we landed we were taxiing in and we were actually flanked by two um fire engines full of south african (laughs) firemen so that was nice and then we got back to the hotel and um my captain at the time said that um, he was so pleased with mine and the first officer's uh, actions during the emergency, and he bought us a bottle of champagne, and we had another week on the ground in uh, in Cape Town. So it all turned out really well. Actually, that, that's a great segue to another one of the questions in the chat room. What's your, your favourite uh, place to RON or remain overnight? Um, there's loads. Um, I loved I loved Cape Town. Um, uh, I like Melbourne, um, Prague. I love Prague. Uh, the Maldives, um, and I love the Isle of Man. And I know that a lot of people would be like, "Well, that's not very exotic," but it's yeah, I stayed there quite a lot as um, based there with a with a global, and that's probably my favourite. Uh, Ca- uh, Captain Cruz in the chat room is asking, are galleys on private aircraft smaller or even bigger than on commercial, and what's the difference? Well, it, well, it depends, because if, for instance, you've got um, an Airbus 319, you'll have the same 
sort of um, size galley, but it's just set out differently. You know, we, we don't have trolleys. Um, they're, they're very plush. You've got all your glasses and, you know, all your crystal wear and um, your, you've got chillers for all your wine and you've got special drawers for all your cutlery and crockery. And so it's all pretty plush. It's very high shine, beautifully finished. Um, but you have to be really organized because they, on the globals and on the, on the um, Gulf streams, the Falcons challenges, they, they are, they are small. So yeah, you have to, you have to know where everything is and be pretty organized. Actually, I know uh, one of our listeners or another fellow podcaster, uh, Pip, he flies a Phenom 300. Is that an aircraft, one of the smaller, very small? Oh, okay. Ones that, I don't know whether you've ever... No flight uh, attendant on that one, Carlos. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is Pip. <laughs> I think the flight attendant is, is probably the pilot, and they just, you know, yeah. chuck yeah. a pan down the back. <laughs> so on the oh, subject... That's funny. You know... It, that's actually a great point because when I was flying the Pilatus, I, you know, if there was anything happening, we didn't have a flight attendant. And anything happening in the back, it was the first officer usually that had to get out of the seat and, and go to the back. And I know I, you know, in just the the, the short year that I was flying that airplane, uh, flying pseudo corporate stuff, I had plenty of stories. I can't imagine how many stories you've had over your career. So. I, I always think that, that, that cops, firefighters, and flight attendants have the best stories, maybe nurses too, because everything that they see coming in. So I, can you share one or two funny stories with us, good experiences? I mean, aside from having dinner at the Ritz with MJ. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's pretty up there, that one. That was um, that story. We, um, we weren't told. We knew... I knew who my principal passenger was because I was I was his full-time flight attendant. But um, we we positioned the aircraft into um, white planes, and we knew that we were picking up the boss, um, the usual entourage, so the bodyguards and everybody, um, and plus one. But and usually we'd be told who the guest was, or we'd, we'd at least be given a name. And on this occasion, we weren't. Um, and uh, all three of us, both both the, the captains and myself, we were, uh, who is it, who is it? And um, all the cars, you know, drew up outside the aircraft and um, I, I had a little sneaky look and, and then I sort of did a bit of a double take and thought, oh my goodness, it's Michael Jackson. Um, so I was like, oh, oh, you know, and the first thing I think of is, oh, I can't wait to tell my mum. <laughs> but, um, but... Yeah, that was pretty surreal. So um, flew him, and then uh, he had um, he had a tour of um, of the Ritz in Paris, and uh, I went along to that. And um, I used to do a little bit of PA work for for my principal as well. So sometimes he'd say, "Oh, you know, come along," um, which obviously annoyed the pilots somewhat. Bless them. Cause I was dragged off when the pilot, when the uh, passengers went off and they were left to clean the aircraft. So that never went down very well. <laughs> yeah, we ended up having dinner at the Ritz and uh, very, very surreal. I look back on it now and I'm like, did that really happen to me? But um, it did. And then, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely memory to look back on. So, but lots of, when, when, 
if you ever sort of walked into a, you know, when you see on the films and people walk into into a bar and everybody goes quiet, it, it was like that. And people were coming up to the table and uh, they'd have to get through like the wall of security first. And, um, and these people were coming and talking to me and I'm thinking, I'm just the flight attendant, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I clean the toilet on the jet. You don't need to be talking to me. <laughs> but no, that was nice. Um, yeah, flying Mariah Carey. We, she was um, entertaining the troops in uh, Kosovo. You just see Carlos's eyes have just <laughs> lit up there. She's lovely. And um, well, as we were coming into land, she was warming up. And her voice was amazing, you know, just on an airbus with no, no mics, no nothing, and it was it was amazing. So, so yeah, uh, yeah. So kind of along the same lines. So we've got these these wonderful memories. What is what what would you consider your most rewarding moment in your career, or is there any one flight or mission that sticks out that you're exceptionally proud of? I think I think it's got to be the moment where we had the um, the smoke in the flight deck because um, I really felt like I'd proved myself um, with all the training over the years that I've done and with the recurrent training every year. When I was able, I mean, nobody wants to put that training into practice. Not really, you know. You don't want to be told. Oh, Beck, would you mind just, you know, just just very diplomatically wander down the cabin and just see if you can smell smoke? No, no flight attendant actually wants to hear that. Um, but and I and I know it's a little bit cliche to say this, but I went into autopilot, and all of a sudden, all my training just kicked in, and um, and yeah, it was. I, when when my when my captain said to me at the end of the flight, "Well done, that was textbook." I just thought, "Brilliant! I've 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 done what I'm here to do," you know. So yeah, I was I was pleased with that one. So that that does stick out, yeah. Nev, uh, you have got a question, haven't you, for Becca? Yes. Um... Well, uh, Armando says that, uh, you know, none of us have flown on an executive jet before or private aircraft. But obviously, uh, you know, us uh, us chaps and ladies in Buckinghamshire uh, have a bit of a penchant for that kind of thing. Um, so actually, Matt's got a couple of pictures of uh, two of the jets uh, that I've flown on. Uh, this is not recently, I have to say. This is going back in the day a bit. But uh, if you can think of a, um, uh, an agricultural machine manufacturer somewhere in the west midlands with a big sort of backhoe loader, loader thing on it and tractor like wheels uh, this company owns the or owned the falcon 2000 i had a jump seat flight on that from east midlands to le bourget which was uh, fantastic and then another one that i went on was owned by a uh, a toy company that makes uh, little uh, bricks for children um, and this was a <laughs> cessna citation 560 60XL and I flew from Farnborough to Billund in Denmark on this one and uh, it had its own little bar in there. We had to help ourselves to the Carlsberg Lager of course there was no no flight attendant on that but I just wonder if you'd flown on uh, either of the, uh, the Falcon 2000 or the uh, or the Citation at all. I've flown um, the Falcon 
Um, and yeah, that I love. I love any any of the jets. I really love. But yeah, I did fly on the Falcon. Yeah, Falcon. Yeah, it's a nice, uh, nice machine. I think it's a twelve seater or ten seater. I can't remember. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a great experience, and it was just a very short flight. You know, forty five minutes from East Midlands to Le Bourget. So I, I couldn't really take it all in at the time. But it was. A, it was a great experience. It's so, a lovely yeah. experience. Yeah, I remember. Um, I used to enjoy it when um, I had to sit in the flight deck with, with boys because then I got to put the headset on and I could hear everything that's going on. Whereas most of the time I was in, in my, in my crew seat um, to the side. But yeah, I, I love that. All the, you know, you can hear everything and the boys talking to each other. Yeah. It's great. Isn't it? Yeah. Really good. But uh, yes, that's not going to happen again for a while. I don't think. No, so. unfortunately no. Yeah. Nev, we've got a question from Pip in the chat oh have we let's have a look uh and uh oh yes uh question for becca from pip he says uh what's the best or the biggest tip that you ever got Mm. oh (laughs) okay and have Uh, you declared it for tax man (laughs) (laughs) yeah Mm. (laughs) oh dear i don't know if i can uh, i don't know if i can yeah, no, I can. You, you can take the fifth on that if you wish. That's uh, <laughs> no, you know, it's fine. as Chris so, Tarrant would um, say, you do not have to answer this question. <laughs> no, no, I don't mind. It's fine. I was I was actually really worried when the envelope turned up. So um, I was um, flying an Airbus, and um, we were in Saudi Arabia, and we got to the. We, we were in the, we were on landing, so we'd, la- we'd landed, and then the right-hand man of the principal got out his briefcase, opened up his briefcase, and gave each crew member a brown envelope, and I just popped it in my flight bag, and then off we went to the hotel, and when I got back to the, to the hotel, so we're, we're in Saudi, I, um, I thought, oh, the envelope, the envelope. So I was in my room and I opened the envelope and I was like, oh, my goodness. So I actually moved a piece of furniture up against the door because I thought, oh, no, what, you know, is someone going to come knocking on my door and want something for this? And I rang, um, I wasn't chief of cabin or anything, I was just cabin crew and I rang, I rang the uh, chief of cabin from my room and I was like, uh, is this normal? Went, yeah, yeah, it's fine, we all got the same. So it, it was um, £5,000 in dollars. So that was the best one. Monetary, my, that was the best my one. My goodness me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, needless to say, it didn't last very long. I probably blew it on shoes and a handbag. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> well, and why wouldn't I think the, quite? I think the best tip I ever got as a pilot was a bag of uh, chocolates. <laughs> and that was in Sholo in Arizona. <laughs> Oh man, I better step up my game. You need to start wearing a skirt. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, that we'd all love to see. And we've got a question, actually, a, a good one from Lane in the chat room, who's asking uh, you, Rebecca, what was your longest flight? Oh, I've done. Um, I've done London to Taipei. Um, yeah, that might have been that might have been a work one. That that would have probably I've done like Moscow, Japan, but the Taipei one was was pretty good. 
You know, there's actually been a couple of questions in the chat room about that, about shortest flight, longest flight. So an aircraft like like the Gulfstream, sometimes we get a little bit technical and we're, you know, we're following the news and this, the, the new Gulfstreams and new global can do 8,000 8, miles and 8,500 miles and 17 hours, whatever. Do it, what, what's your experience with, with private flying or corporate flying? Do most of those aircraft fly those long distances or are they mostly short flights? And then in the meantime, what do you do once you get to a destination? Are you on call? Are you sitting at the airport? Are you sh- how, what's well, your what, what's day in the life? So, so, okay, so here's an example. I uh, was based in Moscow and we had um, a very nice trip down to the Maldives. And we were like, yes, brilliant. You know, the, the boss and the family are there for a couple of weeks. Nice one. We get a bit of downtime. We landed, and then about six hours after we'd landed, the captain gets a phone call saying, um, oh, the boss has chartered the aircraft. And we were like, what? So, yeah, we, we basically had minimum rest, and off we went back to back to Moscow, and he pimped, uh, pimped us out and made some money on, on his aircraft, and then we went back and picked them up. So, yeah, sometimes it's great, and you have, you have a little bit of time down route, but the majority of the time, you're very busy. You're up, down, back and forth. So you have to really make the most of any any downtime you do get because it's few and far between. So obviously we're, to, we're, we're learning all about uh, your sort of like time as, as cabin crew. But have you ever had the uh, sort of desire, if you like, to either fly or um, uh, like being a pilot? Have, have you ever had the desire to, to sort of, you know, jump into the front of the aircraft? Well, you know, Matt, I would find it really, really difficult to cope with being weighted on hand and foot by a flight attendant. So... I, I think I leave all that to to the pilots. You know, they're very good at they're very good at what they do. So no, I've never been tempted to uh, hop hop in a seat full time. No. <laughs> I mean, have you have you had any sort of like flying expert? You know, like uh, like pilot lessons or anything like that? With, with no, I've never had any lessons. I've um, I have once when um, I was on a long haul, and I'd I've done everything I could do. The the passengers were sleeping. And um, the pilot, the captain wanted to get out and stretch his legs. So I sat in with the with the uh, first officer and uh, she was a female first officer. So we had a little girly chat up front. And uh, but that's the closest I've got to it. And I've, I've taken control of like a, a little two seater once out on a jolly with a friend. Um, but that's as, as close as I've got. It's a very, very skilled um, profession. And it's. It's just not one that I'd ever see myself. I don't, and, and to be honest, I wouldn't trust me. <laughs> I would, I would want, I would want to be my own passenger. So now I'm much better in the back. There's <laughs> a, there's a good question actually from uh, a certain someone's wife in the chat room, <coughs> Armando, and uh, she's uh, she's asking what your most memorable place you've travelled. Oh. Most memorable. Um, I was going to say Vegas, but everyone says Vegas. Do you know what? Never been to Vegas. What? So if anybody would like to take me to Vegas, <laughs> I, I'd love to go to Vegas. I'd love to go to Vegas and Bora Bora. Um, two places I've never, I never got. I almost got to Vegas. 
but then they swapped flight attendants. I got off and another one got on. But I loved, um, I found Jerusalem really interesting. Um, the Dead Sea was really cool. Um, Sydney, I did the Sydney Harbour Bridge walk. Um, yeah, so I think as far as really interesting, probably Jerusalem. That's good. I, you know, we're talking about some of these long flights. Uh, another question in the chat room is, do the, do the biz jets have a crew rest area or wh where do you rest on these long flights? <laughs> okay, so um, it depends on the size of the aircraft. So um, my Gulfstream and um, the Global, the flight attendant had a very small, it was, it was like a really tiny little office with a, like a first class size seat. And then you'd have um, a computer screen behind, um, a, you know, a panelled area, which folded down and you had a desk area. And you, you couldn't really get the seat that flat. But the majority of the time, if I slept, I didn't usually sleep, but if I did, it would be on the floor of the galley with um, a duvet underneath me, my coat on, and a duvet over the top because it was really cold by the door. Well, that's not as glamorous as we thought it was going to be. Wow. It's not glamorous at all. It's not. <laughs> I, I, was, I was expecting there to be at least a leather chair. Or oh, a the, yeah, the chairs are leather. But, and you do have like a leather drug it on the floor as well. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Nev, you've got a question from Pip. Yes. And obviously, you know, Becca, that, you know, there's all, all the airline operations are su subject to flight time limitations for uh, flight crew uh, and slightly more hours probably for cabin crew, I think. But uh, as a private operation, uh, are you not subject to any flight time limitations at all? Is, are there limits to the numbers of, of hours you can fly in a day or, or a week, for example? We, we did have flight time limitations, but... <laughs> Really, it was a lot of it was down to the discretion of the captain. If the boss wanted to go somewhere, then we would we would go. But if it got to a crunch point where you know the crew were absolutely shattered and we just couldn't do any more, then it would be down to the pilot to the to the captain to say to the boss, "Okay, we have to wait. You need to give us more hours." But Nine times out of ten, we we followed similar. I've got to be careful what I say, but similar similar limitations to you guys. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And uh, Matt, there's a question from Nick Codling. Isn't yeah, there? absolutely. Yeah, he's he's actually asking the question: uh, What's the most expensive wine or champagne that you've ever served on board? Oh my word! <laughs> Lambrini. <laughs> probably couldn't even remember what it was called but um oh, yeah and this this is actually a little bit controversial so i'm not going to say the culture of the of the person i was serving to but i did serve um some alcohol very expensive red wine once and i think the bottle was around six seven thousand pounds what oh my goodness <laughs> yeah i guess <like> <laughs> 
little bit more than those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say, John's just saying in my ear. Is that a little bit more even, than what? Yeah, even with yeah. staff discount. Yeah, absolutely. Even with staff discount. <clears throat> absolutely. What a blind! My goodness. Me. I know. It's... Lane, uh, no, Lane's... not not everybody. Not all of all of my clients were like that. I mean, some you'd get on and and they'd just want a diet coke or a you know a Fanta. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't always. They're just a lot of them are just like us. You know, you, they know what they like. And I was I was flying for one family, and the, the PA rang me one day and said they they all want McDonald's. So I just swung by <laughs> McDonald's on the way to the airport and. You know, served up burgers to he, them. Heated it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, Becca, one of the stories that, that us guys cover on the show quite frequently is stories about um, passengers bringing animals on board. Obviously, the emotional support. Ah, the emotional animals. support. Animal. Oh, yes. Ah. Has, there, has there been any kind of strange animals that you've um, had to cater for on board, apart from um, dogs and cats? I suppose the strangest would be um, a, a lot of falcons. Um, yeah, they all have their own stands that they, they sit on. And it was a little bit unnerving because they had their head caps on. Um, but as you walk past them, you know, they, their whole head moved and, and followed you. So, and, and very expensive, apparently. So, but not, not really any trouble. They were lovely. Didn't, you know, didn't, weren't too demanding. I had them... Um, a flight once out of, um, I can't remember where it was now, it was somewhere in Saudi, and uh, I was told I had 13 passengers, Jeddah, and I was told we had 13 passengers, so I stood at the top of the stairs, and um, a gentleman walked out with two cat carriers, and uh, just literally popped them at my feet at the top of the stairs, and it was two beautiful Bengal cats, and I just looked at the gentleman, I said, "Um, is that it? And he went, yeah, yeah, that's it. So... Two cats, so that was nice. Couple of couple of dogs. One of my one of my principals. We used to take his dogs quite often, and that was lovely. They had their own little water bowls. I love it. Lane puts in the chat room falcons on a falcon. Oh yeah, falcons on a falcon. Very good. Nev, uh, you've got a question from the chat. Actually, room. I've actually I've got I've got a sorry to interrupt. Oh. Sorry slightly. Yep. I, I do actually have. Let me just make this. Uh, I'm trying to make this do this day, but it won't now. Oh, it's it's broke. I've broken it. Uh, I, I was I was about to do something really clever, and it and it's backfired terribly. Uh, okay, <laughs> hang on. Here you go. This this is sorry. Uh, Armando sent me a picture. Uh, that's what I was going to try to do. There, there you go. <laughs> yeah. There uh, <laughs> Yeah, that would have been a whole lot slicker if it had worked first time, wouldn't it? But there we are, never mind. Uh, that's that's exactly what they look like, but it wasn't in a commercial liner. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so good. I mean, what's the reason for that? Is that just literally transporting them from one place to to another? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Gosh. I thought you were asking what the reason for the for the eye caps are. It's because the pilots or the cabin crew don't want a bunch of falcons flying around the airplane. <laughs> well, no, quite. <laughs> yes. Definitely not. Yeah, slightly unnerving. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Nev, wow. Nev, you've got uh, Micah's question. Yeah, Micah asks, and I think you might have slightly answered this already, but Micah says, uh, other than the big dead fish, uh, what are the most uh, exciting foods and drinks that you've served on board? Um... You know, it's 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 probably um, weird for, for just people like us to uh, to realise, but 
most people like the sort of stuff we like, you know, um, just normal stuff. I'd serve up bangers and mash sometimes. I'd do afternoon tea, or then you go to, you know, um, the likes of black cod and sushi and caviar. And I remember once having spent hours organizing the catering for a Saudi flight. And um, oh, it was vast. We had about 18 passengers on um, uh, an, an Airbus. And um, it took such a lot of organization. We got everything stowed. I mean, it was chock-a-block. We couldn't get food anywhere else. And then we thought that the passengers were arriving, and it wasn't. The passengers had then organized all their own catering. And this chap came up the stairs and handed me this huge terrine thing. And I thought, where on earth am I going to put this? I can't stick it in the toilet. That's not very hygienic. And um, I put it on the side in the galley. And as I lifted the lid off, it was a goat's head oh. with eyes and everything. Oh, dear. It was horrible. Did, did it fit in the oven, I think, I'm on those? Yeah. Oh, no, definitely not. It was one of those that you just put the whole platter in front of the passengers mm. on the on the dining table and they... they they pick what they like. Wow. Okay. Uh, Pip's asking, do you, uh, another question. Do you, a, good, a very good question. Yeah. Actually. yeah. Do, uh, do you eat the leftover food? I do, and it's brilliant, says Pip. <laughs> uh, yes. Nick, Nick is asking, uh, what, uh, obviously, with the kind of the um, uh, boundaries of border controls and stuff of the countries, um, when you fly into certain airports or other or airports globally, um, are there specific border control points just for you, the VIP crews to go through, or is it all open? You know, do you just go to a separate one or is there, a, you just go through the normal so gates? Most of the time an airport will have a VIP terminal. Um, so we go through the VIP terminal. Sometimes depending on where you are, you may end up coming through with, um, with, with normal commercial passengers. But the majority of the time, it's you have a, an FBO fixed base operator, and um, yeah, the crew would the crew and passengers go go through that that side. Hmm. So we're going to touch before we uh, before we wrap things up, Becca. Just another thing that we're going to mention as well, because you are in the process of writing a book, aren't you? Yes, um, I'm I'm trying to write a book, and I was very. In one way, when they said we were locked down again, I thought, oh, well, this is brilliant. You know, I'm going to have weeks of time to really knuckle down and, and write my book. And I think I've, I've got about two chapters down so far. But, um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of, of writing a book, yes, about so my travels. About your travels. I was going to say about your travels and some of the yes. stories, because I'm sure you've got um, a lot more stories and stuff to tell. But, uh, Nev, uh, uh, any more questions for Becca, or do you want to fire away with that um, all-important last question? No, I think we've probably covered all, all the ones that we've got in the in the chat room. So this is the last question, Becca, and uh, it's a question we ask all of our guests. Um, if you had the chance to fly on any aircraft, or even fly the aircraft itself, uh, it could be commercial, military, general aviation, exec jet, anything you like, whether it's a current aircraft or one that's been retired what would it be? Um, 
I love the Dakota. That's so I'd love answer. to. I'd love to fly on a Dakota. Armando, look at him! Look at him! <laughs> we'll have to chat afterwards. You have oh, just, okay. you've just, you've just made Armando's year. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I love. I'd love to have a go in the Dakota. Yeah. All right, it's a great answer, I think, Becca. <laughs> <laughs> any reason for that at all no uh, <laughs> anyway <laughs> so rebecca uh thank you for uh for coming on the show tonight it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and Very um, welcome. it's thank great to uh great to hear the stories and we look forward to the book you're gonna have to keep uh in touch and let us know um you know when when you get this uh or you know finished and uh on available for us to read I will do. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So uh, moving on to the next part of the show then. And uh, up next, it is, let me just scroll through my notes because I should have these up here. (laughs) So up next is our interview that uh, was been done with George Lee. And uh, this is part eight of the interview, which I know a lot of people have been looking forward to each week. And uh, so here we go. This is part eight of the George Lee interview. Now, um, when you got back to the UK, um, you were in the Nationals, placed second. But more importantly, perhaps, the country honoured you for your achievements. Uh, Firstly, with the Royal Aero Club's gold medal, which I might point out is only awarded for outstanding achievements. Um, And you joined the ranks of uh, previous aviators like the Wright Brothers, Blerio, Alcock and Brown, even the Apollo 11 astronauts. A fine company. That was a remarkable thing to be given, yes? Yes, I was honoured to get a lot a lot of different honours, uh, medals, Nick. I don't have a, an awful lot of huge memory points from those presentations, apart from they were given by different members of the royal family, many of them. Prince Charles gave a couple, Prince Andrew gave a couple, and Prince Philip gave, I believe from memory, the Air League Founders Medal. So that was, that, 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 that was absolutely wonderful. But one... One award was uh, uh, was the MBE, and interestingly, it was actually awarded on the civil list as opposed to the military list. So Marin and my mother in, and I, of course, in my best uniform, went off to Buckingham Palace to um, to receive that, and that 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 was a great honour. And but no tremendous memories from the day. A lot of people were getting a lot of different things. So yeah, but nonetheless, great honour. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, the royal family, uh, 78 saw you uh, at RAF Bista for a number of flights with royalty, and you uh, took Prince Charles, uh, then, I guess, uh, a reasonably young man, uh, the heir to the throne, up in uh, a grob, I believe. Did he enjoy himself? He did, Nick. It was a private visit, so uh, the man could actually relax. He didn't have a lot of hangers-on. It was very informal. Uh, I remember waiting out by the entrance gates of Bicester for his arrival and looking and seeing this open-top Aston Martin coming down the road. And there was HRH at the wheel with his private detective lounging on the back seat. (laughs) But the intention was to do a 100-kilometre triangle 
uh, triangular cross-country course. And it would have been wonderful. I felt very disappointed because the British weather just did not cooperate. There was no way we were going cross-country, just impossible. And I often wondered what it would have been like had we gone and landed out and curious people might have come and said, has anybody ever told you you look remarkably like Prince Charles? Oh, that would have been great. But anyway, we did a lot of aerobatics. And at one stage, I thought, dare I do a beat up with the heir to the throne? Mm, well, never mind. My career is at stake, but here we go. So blasted off down the airfield and did a beat up at very low level, pulled up and landed on one downwind landing, again, below normal minimum circling altitude, I felt, ooh, got a little bit of lift here. Dare I throw a turn? Oh, what the heck? I will. And it was enough. And it hooked into it and it developed. And we actually climbed up to 3,000 feet from you know, fairly low altitude. So at least it gave him a little taste of what gliding is about. He loved it. I think he really enjoyed it. And um, he's got a wonderful sense of humor, Prince Charles. We went in for our lunch break and I was ushering him into what is normally the, the briefing room and all laid out of the finest silver and linen and everything else for HRH. He stopped at the doorway, had a quick look around and turned around. And he said to me, I suppose it's always like this, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was priceless. No, it, oh, it, very it, good it, indeed. It was a lovely visit, Nick. Can I move forward now to the defense of your world championship, this time in France? Um, unless there's anything else you particularly want to cover in the lead up to that. But how did that competition go? I had the same regular loyal crew chief, a different crew member, but they knew each other well. No, no problems there. We went to a French Air Force base called Romorantin for the pre practice period practice <laughs> so I, I had a lot of time and the weather was dreadful it rained and rained so we polished and fettled and polished and fettled the glider was perfect and towards the very last day suddenly the sun came out and wow we got the glider ready towed out to the launch point the French towed their gliders out there was a French civil gliding club there as well and they parked them and off they went this was lunchtime this is the French lunch it's very serious and the tug pilot came out and he parked his plane and he was about to go off for lunch. I couldn't believe it. I went over and said, please, please, just one towel before lunch. And bless him, he gave in. And I went and did 600 kilometers or something. And the French came out after their lunch and flew 250, 300. So I do recall that. The event itself was probably the most straightforward of the world championships. The weather was generally consistent. Uh, not booming strong weather, but good, good, solid, consistent weather. On one memorable day, I was the only person of any class, there were three classes by now, uh, to actually get home. And that was the most marginal final glide I've ever had in my life. We topped up at the top of a fire that was going. Other gliders were way down low. There's no way they're getting home. And I milked it for all I could and set off for a Chateauroux which was the big French airfield with monster runways and parallel taxiways. I had a Belgian open-class pilot off my left wing, but he was a bit lower and he wasn't going to make it for sure. And I didn't think I was going to make it. And I just pressed on looking at the instruments, any movement of the air, just gently following it until finally I saw I was going to creep over the airfield boundary. The only problem was there's still two kilometers of concrete before the finish line, minor problem. So I just, 
yeah, squeeze the buttocks and carry it on and on and on, floating, floating, floating until finally I'm not going to scrape the belly of the glider. I just have to drop the gear now. So I dropped it and touched and just rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. It's fortunately a smooth surface and even able to apply a tiny bit of air brake having crossed the finish line. So that was a very memorable day. Uh, the I was going to day, call you a bit uh, of a show off there, uh, Josh, <laughs> but that is remarkable. That should be squeezing over the line like that. That's brilliant. The final day worked as it should work. My out and clean class teammate, the same guy, he was out of contention. So he was uh, quite legally helping me to maintain my overall lead. So he was a certain number of kilometers ahead, and by code, he was reporting back thermal strengths. So that was helpful to a reasonable degree, at least. And I think I, think I got third for the day, which was enough to cement uh, the overall victory. Um, now, um, you quite rightly received many accolades uh, for your second world championship in a row. But uh, the icing on the cake, perhaps, you were invited to the palace again, this time to dine with the royal family. What a lovely thing that must have been. Now, that was, that was, that was very, very special. That actually happened in 79, and the telegram arrived when we were in Cyprus, I recall. So I flew back, and uh, this was a very different event, and so much more meaningful, to be perfectly honest. There were 10 guests uh, and then, of course, the Queen and Prince Philip. So we waited in this huge, big lounge room waiting for Her Majesty to arrive and heard the corgis yapping, here she comes, so in she comes. And uh, there's a little group around her, and every so often one person would get a gentle tug on the elbow, and that person would be just slid out of the group, and another person slid in. The lunch itself, of course, was special in a lovely little room, uh, I was seated next to the Bishop of Oxford, I recall. But the one thing I do remember, I was feeling pretty nervous. Not yet. <laughs> I really was. But the one thing I do remember was a very animated conversation between Claire Francis, the yachtswoman of fame, with uh, Prince Philip. That was, she, was, she was certainly not nervous. <laughs> but then afterwards, after the lunch, this is where it got special for me, because we had the same setup after the lunch in this lounge room. And to this day, I cannot remember how it happened, but somehow I ended up with just the Queen and myself side by side at the front window of this lounge room, this big bay window looking up the mall. And we were watching preparations being made for a state visit uh, the following week. And we were just chatting as, as you would to a neighbor over a fence. It was absolutely remarkable. So that was just so wonderful. She's a wonderful woman, absolutely wonderful. Well, George, it seems that the RAF, uh, in their wisdom, uh, were going to give one of their finest pilots a, a grand tour. But then again, if you're going to have a grand tour, the one you were given has to be, uh, you know, um, an absolutely wonderful uh, thing to, to do. Uh, you were on the tactical leadership program in Germany, weren't you? Yes, Nick, uh, you've summed that up very well. It was indeed a very special tour, quite extraordinary in so many ways. Firstly, well, it was on a German Air Force base itself, under a the, the unit TLP under a German commandant with a multinational staff, one Belgian, German, uh, and then Brits and Americans. Uh, the, TLP pro the 
TLP was actually under AFSI as opposed to NATO. That's Allied Air Force of Central Europe. The main difference being that AFSI didn't have any money. But anyway, the, the, the program itself was superb. There's no other way to describe it. And prior to going on staff, I actually went and did the course myself with my, with my regular navigator. We went over there to uh, the base, which was called Jever, up in the far north of Germany, not that far from the North Sea, actually. And uh, the, the course was multi Mission, we had six air defense aircraft on each course and then 12 ground attack aircraft. And we started off with the gentle stuff, a bit of medium level, dissimilar air combat, all all of that sort of stuff before bringing bringing the the serious stuff on down into the low level regime. And the air defenders would be mounting their their cap, waiting for the ground attack package uh, to come through. And when they see them, launch at them. So... The mission intensity and complexity developed as the course went on. And towards the latter part of the course, they actually brought in the American aggressors, which was tremendous because the aggressors is a specialist American union, uh, unit flying F-5s painted in full Soviet color scheme. And the tactics that they employed were Soviet tactics, and they were very disciplined in doing that. So from a training value perspective, the aggressors were magnificent unit to train in, very, very realistic. But having mentioned the aggressor, there was one incident we had when I was on staff, actually. The aggressors were out there on their own little cap waiting for the ground attack package. And one, one of the aggressor pilots, he, he didn't see the package until very late. It was visual lookout. The F-5 doesn't have look down uh, radar. He saw them very late, rolled over, pulled down to get in behind them. Only he misjudged uh, the pull down and he overcooked it. Didn't pull hard enough, I guess. And he saw the ground looming up at a rather remarkably uh, disturbing rate. And he carried on and he actually glanced the earth. He, he impacted, but only a glancing blow, back up and ejected. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> what, what, what an amazing thing. Within an inch of death. Well, quite so. I don't know. Incredible. But the course itself, I could feel myself when I did the course getting sharper each mission. It was that environment, just tremendous flying, exciting, adrenaline pumping flying. And, and flying with have, some of the best pilots picked from uh, each of the air forces. Oh, normal operational squadron, operational pilots, I would say. But it was an environment where they were away from all the squadron pressures and stuff. And we gelled, bonded well together. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. That, and an amazing variety of aircraft types actually on, would come on the course. A huge number from A-10 Warthogs all the way up. F-15s, even F-treble-1s, and, and everything in between. And these uh, nations were encouraged for uh, to please bring along two-seaters so the staff members could actually get airborne on these missions, because otherwise one is relying on pilot reports, which probably a little bit less than fully accurate at times. <laughs> <laughs> so so I got some flying in. I got to fly in a tremendous range of two-seat aircraft. Excellent. 
Harrier Mirage F-16. My favorite by far was the F-15. I fell in love with that aircraft and I thought, oh, why didn't we buy the F-15? It was just gorgeous. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. So a, a great experience. And in between courses, uh, we were required to keep current on our own types. So I went down to Wildenrath and flew the F-4. The squadrons were given that little bit of extra hours allowance. And I alternated between 19 and 92 squadron. And they were very generous and, um, in, in hosting me. So I'm very appreciative of that. Well, it sounds like a great uh, time you had. You were able to get into the American PX and buy all their wonderful steaks and even come home with a duty-free car. I didn't uh, feel jealous at all uh, up there in northern Scotland. Um, so the TLP was uh, actually not far from where you were going to fly the next, your third world championship. Um, so that must have been quite handy. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Well, that was another awesome segment for the show from uh, from from you guys. Well done. Fa to, fascinating uh, to hear all about, um, you know, sort of like the the, the uh, royal family links and stuff there. Mm. I, I I tell you what, I, I, one of my rare dreams would be to literally just have coffee with the Queen, because I bet I, you know, listening to the amazing stories that Becca has been telling us, I bet she's got some stories she could tell, hasn't she? Actually, lovely chat uh, comment from the chat room, Matt, from Lee Davies says uh, the George Lee chats are stunning. Oh, that's very Thank kind. You. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, really Thank enjoying you. those. And they will be available on YouTube uh, when the series is complete. But uh, So we are going to rip on as quickly as we can with the commercial news. So if everyone is ready. Indeed. Yes, yes, yes. Let's go. Lee's just told me off, by the way. Well, he, says, he said, coffee, yeah. please. He's like, surely <laughs> it would be tea if you're, if you're addressing the Queen. But anyway. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Indeed. Absolutely. Sorry, I well, didn't mean so to interrupt, Nev. No, no, not at all. No, uh, I, um, I don't even want to read this story out. This was the story I'd never wanted to read, but uh, I knew it was going to come, and it's on the PaxX uh, Aero site, and it says that British Airways officially scrapped the uh, A318 uh, Golf um, Echo Uniform November Alpha this week and with its departure from the fleet that is the service terminated between uh, New York uh, JFK and London City Airport which was heavily focused on the banking community uh, commuting between the two global hubs uh, the aircraft and the route were very special in many ways it was all business class featuring just 32 seats on board and gave the flight a hint of a private jet feel so did the stop in Shannon Island on the 
uh, to refuel and clear immigration uh, when heading westbound, which was necessary because of the uh, limited uh, runway length off of uh, London City Airport. But having cleared US immigration in Shannon, uh, delivering passengers to JFK was a domestic rival, arrival there, which was another further win for the, uh, for the passengers. Uh, BA also honoured the route with a call sign Speedbird 1 on the westbound sector, which was a designation previously used for the Concorde uh, between the two cities. At the same time, however, the route uh, was showing signs of weakness well before the current downturn, and uh, British Airways had already retired the second A318 uh, to operate the route as a double daily service at its peak a few years back. But the, the carrier also cut down on some of the perks associated with flying on the baby bus. Uh, Travellers at JFK were at one time afforded access to the Concorde Room premium lounge experience, but that also ended years ago. Uh, the cabin offered life lap beds, but the product was already behind the times when it launched in 2009 and never really saw a major improvement. Uh, call it the burden of being too far ahead of the time, but options for a truly premium flatbed seat on a single aisle plane only recently started to appear as the 737 MAX and A321 Neo LR and XLR were and are now joining the market. Uh, In-flight entertainment and internet connectivity options were similarly rather meagre on board. Uh, The route's demise was announced last August, but now with the aircraft still in the fleet, there was always a chance uh, the decision could be reversed, but now that's not an option. Uh, The only other possibility, of course, is if they do choose to operate the city to uh, JFK route again, uh, the Airbus Bus A220 has already flown it, proving that it can operate non-stop with 40 business class passengers on board. But no one thus far has expressed an interest in that option. But maybe in a few years' time, if demand recovers and expense accounts are loosened a bit more, we <laughs> might see that return. But, uh, yeah, that was always a bit precarious under the current circumstances, I'm afraid. So a, a great shame not only to see the route finally closed, but also the aircraft uh, gone to the, uh, the scrappy as well. Mm. Yeah, as you say, I, I mean, it's it's always been that 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 whole idea of it. It's a bit like the exec travel that we were talking about earlier, isn't it? It's that whole sort of, uh, you know, sort of business class only type thing. It makes mm, it feel it, quite it special. It did do quite well at, at the time, I think, actually. Mm. Um, but obviously, as things started to go wrong, well, over a year ago now, there just just wasn't the demand uh, for that service. No, no, indeed. Okay, we'll move on to the next story, and um, uh, we're talking about one route closing. Now, we we touched uh, on this story a while back, actually. I can't remember when, but anyway, on the mirror.co.uk, it is a new budget airline that looks to launch in 2021 and become the world's nicest airline. You heard it here first, ladies and gents. Uh, So Breeze Airways is a new low-cost airline that's currently aiming to, to make its debut in 2021, which seems very strange, uh, and eventually become the world's nicest airline. So a new budget airline is hoping to make its debut in 2021. Breeze Airways will be a low-cost airline that aims to become the world's nicest airline. The venture is spearheaded by aviation entrepreneur uh, David Nealman, uh, who has worked on US airlines, including JetBlue and WestJet. Uh, The idea is 
that the airline will fly from smaller secondary airports in a bid to offer shorter travel times for passengers. Although there's no confirmed launch date as of yet, a statement on the Breeze Airways website says, Welcome to Breeze Airways, a new airline scheduled for takeoff in 2021. We are a group of aviation experts and fanatics working day and night to build something brand new and really special for guests. Stay tuned and until then have a nice day the airline will be offering domestic flights in the u.s rather than international routes although it hasn't yet confirmed which routes will be available there's uh, currently no confirmed launch date although the airline has started hiring staff including flight attendants and already look, took delivery of one of its first planes back in early february of this year so the Embraer e190 aircraft is one of a fleet of 15 of the airline uh, for the airline which will will be on lease from Nordic Aviation Capital. Uh, David Nilman said in a statement at the time, we couldn't be happier with our partnership with Nordic Aviation Capital and to take delivery of our first Embraer uh, E190 from NAC. We look forward to a long and mutually beneficial re relationship together as well as the next 14 aircraft. I mean, the story goes on, but uh, I mean, it just seems, I know we've covered this before, haven't we? But it just seems like a really strange time to be releasing a new uh, airline into the world. I mean, is is that you know, is there ever a good time? I suppose. Well, with every challenge, every uh, worldwide challenge like this, there's always opportunity for someone. And I, when we talked about it a year ago, I think it was episode three hundred one, three hundred five, something like that. Um, that, yeah, you know, the experience that David Nealon has with JetBlue. To, and WestJet taking those airlines into what they are today. Um, one must assume that he's going to do the same with this. And he's probably not a, a person that's going to do some, take on an endeavor like this if there isn't an, an opportunity there. So, I'm, uh, um, And I think they were going to go after some essential air service routes too. Okay. So there's some guaranteed income in there too. Yeah, I'm not going to read out the uh, the uh, comment that uh, has been popped up on screen by our producer, but uh, yeah, the check is in the post. Uh, thank you, Lane. Uh <laughs> Actually, before we move on, I'm, I'm just going to say I really love this livery from Brazil. It's a great look, isn't it? Actually, in fact, really I've got a picture nice. here. Let, let me pop a, a picture of it up here. Look, I mean, it's a it's a sort of simple. Do you know what? It's nice to see because I'm so bored of seeing the white with just like the tail fin that's basically been. Um, that really it's quite it's quite nice like to that. see uh, effort that's gone into mm -hmm. into the paintwork, isn't it? It's it's really good to see. Armando, you're on the next story with uh, uh, well, moving to Europe for this one. Armando, right, that's up to me. Um, so <laughs> this is from Airline Geeks. Uh, sorry, I was actually amazed by this breeze, and I was I was I, I'm a I'm a nerd for airline liveries. Um, <laughs> From AirlineGeeks.com, uh, TUI Belgium resume Boeing 737 MAX 8 operations. The news comes just a few weeks after the uh, EASA, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, certified the aircraft to fly again in Europe. So according to Aviation24.be, TUI will fly uh, Belgium, or TUI fly Belgium began MAX flights to Spain, making it the first European carrier to fly the MAX again after its recertification. So, while the airline had not officially announced, announced the MAX's return, according to the Brussels Airport website, TUI Flight 1011 was scheduled for 9.30 a.m. on Wednesday, February 17th, using a 
737 MAX 8. Uh, the registration is Oscar, Oscar, of course, Mike, Alpha, X-Ray. Uh, the plane arrived in Malaga at 12.15 p.m. and departed for Alicante shortly after, before returning back to Brussels. So on FlightAware, the aircraft was shown as uh, performing flights over Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, uh, Wednesday Mon and Monday. Those uh, were likely test flights in preparation for the res uh, resumption of these commercial operations. Um, so this uh, TUI Fly Belgium joins American Airlines, WestJet, United, Aeromexico, and Goal in Brazil to uh, as airlines that are resuming the MAX operations. Um, also this week, the United Arab Emirates, a key international travel hub, as we all know, announced on Wednesday that it had lifted its ban on the Boeing 737 MAX, allowing that plane to return to its skies. Um, so there you go. So the MAX, as we predicted, is uh, taking back to the skies and most likely with a uh, little fanfare and little issue. You see the registration on that uh, picture that uh, Matt on the screen of that TUI. Uh, Max. Yeah, it's pretty appropriate, isn't it? Oh, Ooh, Max. Ooh, Max. <laughs> <laughs> so from, uh, from aircraft to interiors with this next story from the dailypost.co.uk and that stunning Airbus cabin with extra hand luggage space and hero lighting moves closer on the A320 family. So airline JetBlue has started flight testing of a new aircraft cabin called Airspace uh, by Airbus for its A320 family. Airbus teams performed the trial installation of a fully integrated cabin in an A321 Neo fuselage. They'll now undertake a second phase of in-flight testing in February with JetBlue to validate any further fine-tuning of the cabin and noise measurements. Michael Wilmer, Airbus technical leader for the A320 family airspace cabin program, said the rationale for these tests is to ensure the overall maturity and robustness of the new cabin during flight. He said the initial flight testing subjected the cabin to conditions well beyond what it would be normally subjected to in a standard flight profile. Overall, he said, we are pleased with the test results of the first phase. and Now the second flight test stage is together with the lessons learned from previous developments will further help to ensure a robust product of entry into service over the next few coming months. The airspace cabin was originally announced at the Paris Air Show back in June 2017 for the A320 family and has come a long way from the initial concept drawings, uh, 3D virtual reality and hardware mock-ups seen at trade shows. Uh, so the airspace for the A320 family includes a redesigned entrance area with customizable welcome lighting, uh, new extra-large XL overhead bins, the largest in its class, restyled window bezels which allow more light into the cabin, Integrated window shades and new side walls delivering a sleek, customised look while yielding even more shoulder room. New lavatories with antimicrobial coatings and touchless features and a customisable Hero ceiling lights plus full-colour LED lighting throughout the cabin. Myra Staunova, Director of Product Development at JetBlue, said, With its unique cabin design and improved reliability, we are confident that aerospace... Uh, airspace will bring a, res a residential touch uh, to our cabin and help customers feel at home in the sky. It does look nice. I'm not going to lie. It does look nice. And I think one of the things we can all agree with, I think, on the show is that um, one of the things that we are probably going to look forward to most as a passenger is having more room to put our 
uh, luggage in the event. I mean, I, I like the business layout. That works for me. That looks very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does look good. The, the light. I'd, I'd love to know what the uh, the hero lighting is about. You know, is it kind of sort of Superman logos on the ceiling or? Uh, right, <laughs> that Batman logos being shone on the. I don't know. Right, okay. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Nev, you've got some unruly passengers. Oh dear, dear, dear! I've had to read this story several times. I couldn't actually believe what I was reading, but let's see how it goes. Uh, this is on the simpleflying.com website. It says that a man who assaulted and threatened to kill a flight attendant on a United Airlines flight has been fined $50,000. The incident on a flight from Los Angeles to Tokyo on February the 2nd of this, uh, sorry, of last year, 2020, forced the plane to divert to Anchorage, Alaska, where the passenger was removed. Uh, Sexan Kamtong, a 52-year-old Californian, was on board United Airways Flight 32 from Los Angeles to Tokyo, Narita, when his behaviour became increasingly erratic. Shortly after takeoff, the man began banging on toilet doors before behaving aggressively towards an intervening crew member. After returning to his seat, he attempted to order alcoholic beverages but was denied by the cabin crew. Uh, when the lead flight attendant was called to deal with the problem, uh, he struck her in the face and tried to wrestle her to the floor. During the scuffle, he also threatened to kill the woman before being restrained, uh, with the flight forced to land at Anchorage. Uh, he also appeared in court this week and was handed a hefty $49,793 fine along with five years of probation. The fine includes costs incurred by the plane's diversion and the cost of meals and accommodation for all other passengers on board. According to the sentencing documents, vouchers for meals and hotels were issued to United staff and 214 passengers. Um, the, as the unruly passenger suffers from a severe diabetic condition, he managed to avoid a prison sentence as the condition made him high risk during the COVID pandemic. During sentences, uh, sentencing, his attorney, Sam Elias, uh, outlined his client's ongoing battle with uncontrolled diabetes. Furthermore, he claimed that the combination of severe diabetes and alcohol can lead to severe hypoglycemia and consequent combativeness. Some would account the man lucky that his fine just stood at $50,000. With additional costs such as fuel, labour and flight cancellations, the true cost of his actions is considerably higher than the fine imposed. The flight attendant involved in the incident has also developed lasting medical problems due to the assault. So uh, that's... um, I don't know what to say about that. There's obviously ongoing medical conditions going on there, but uh, even so, there's stuff that is just unacceptable I mean, on a flight. Is, is there is there an argument there for, like, you know, perhaps if, if the condition is uncontrolled, should they have been allowed on the well, aircraft in the first speaking, place? Diabetes of, of all sorts can be controlled. Mm, you know, uh, true, um, yeah, good point. Yeah. And uh, my father suffered from, from that for many years, <clears> and he had a... Uh, hypoglycemia o- on occasion, um, but he didn't resort to the sorts of action no. that we saw there. Is so, it being used as an excuse, perhaps? Then? Well, I don't know. Uh, you'll have to have a word with his lawyer about oh, that. Oh, right, but, yes, uh, yes, good idea. The fine has been handed <laughs> out, and actually you could say that a, a 
you know, hefty fine like that is a serious deterrent. Now, there may have been mitigating circumstances which the article doesn't fully go into, but uh, nonetheless, that's... Uh, you honestly think he'll pay that fine, Nev? Well, let's. Uh, if he doesn't, then presumably the court can um, start taking mm-hmm. true, true. property from him and uh, put him in jail. Uh, Indeed. So, uh, yeah. Armando, moving to the UK for the next story. Uh, are we or are we moving to Bahrain? Well, I think, I think we're going Bahrain. Okay. So Bahrain's Air Force is to receive another BAE Systems uh, RJ-100, one of the 10 Avros which had been withdrawn from the fleet of a Swedish air carrier, Bratens Regional Airline. Uh, Bratens Regional had been operating eight RJ-100s and a pair of RJ-85s, but put the aircraft on the market through Skyworld Aviation in 2019. Uh, six of these had been sold by the end of January in this year, uh, two to Canada's Summit Air and to a piece to UK-based uh, spare specialist, CFS Aero, and executive jet support. The latest agreement with the Bahrain Defense Force involves um, this particular serial number, E3380. So it will undergo maintenance at Norwich, according to Skyworld, before being ferried to uh, the Gulf. So the Royal Bahraini Air Force is already an operator of Avro RJs and VIP configurations, having previously acquired... Uh, directly ordered RJ-85, as well as an ex-Air Malta RJ-85, and a former Blue One RJ-100. According to Skyworld, they say, uh, we are delighted to have supported this prestigious organization in this transaction and hope to continue the relationship with future fleet plans. Uh, Three of the uh, remaining Rothens regional aircraft remain for sale. So uh, tap into the PTUK coffers. Let's get one. (laughs) Oh, we ain't got to go far to get them, have we, Matt? Well, no, up the road, yeah. yeah it's right. <laughs> if it's in, in fact, Norwich. You could probably just drive up there to Norwich and get it piece by piece in the middle of the night if you wanted to. Right, okay. Uh, good Good to that know where you're at. Map. Right, yes, okay. I mean, that you know, it's still theft. I, perhaps we should uh, avoid that where possible. Uh, Nobody <laughs> would ever notice that Carlos has <laughs> an airplane in his front yard. I bet his wife would. <laughs> <laughs> in about ten seconds, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll ask her. We'll ask for. We'll no. ask for an opinion, shall we? Uh, the, the wind. The window's enough. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You, you got away lucky there, didn't you? Really? Yeah. Uh, anyway, we've got a nice story for the last one, haven't we, Carlos? We have. I like this, Matt. I do like this. So this is uh, on the Mirror.co.uk and. 10 spectacular airport runways from epic backdrops to famously tricky landings. Now, this is the world's most incredible runways and uh, from across the globe. And uh, the, so we're taking going to take a look at these. So we're going to start off. Uh, should we start off with number one on here? So this one is the ice runway in Antarctica. And uh, obviously, it's going to be tricky to land on there. This uh, uh, the Edmundson Scott South Pole Station. Uh, it's nice to see a C-130 landing there on the ice. Uh, number two, uh, Princess Juliana International Airport, or as most people will know it as Saint Martin or Saint Martin Airport, where the planes fly over the beach and blow sand in your eyes. Uh, next one is number three. This is Barra Airport in Scotland. And uh, I'm sorry, where was that again? <laughs> in, in Scotland. Right. And. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So this, this is this is interesting because the aircraft here have to land on a beach for this particular airport. 
Uh, number four, this is Zhangzhou E. Eurosquin Airport in Sabah Island. Now, the picture on this one looks really good. This is the world's shortest commercial runway with a length of 396 metres, meaning only small planes and helicopters can land, but uh, that's not all. That's an impressive spot. The runway ends right at the edge of a cliff overlooking the ocean, so pilots need to be very skilled to land there. Next one, Nev. I mean, where's this next one, number five? Oh, look, there it is. My favourite, Gibraltar. And uh, yes, it's um, especially this time of year, a little bit windy around there as well. All sorts of nasty rotors and turbulence coming off the the rock there. But uh, yeah, one of my favourites, definitely. And number six, Innsbruck International Airport in Austria. Uh, plenty of airports around the world, some beautiful surroundings, but there are, there's something particularly enchanting about Innsbruck, where the runway is surrounded by breathtaking snow-capped mountains, green valleys, although these do make it a notoriously difficult place to land. Carlos, I actually jumped, I, I went skydiving from the Innsbruck airport in a helicopter about oh. 10 years ago. It was beautiful. And while you're there, <laughs> John, take, num- take number seven, Armando. Oh, this is, what a, and what a cool picture Matt's going to pop up here. Leipzig uh, Airport in Germany. So better known as Leipzig Halle Airport because it serves both cities. Um, it is connected. It's, it's connected its north runway by a bridge so aircraft can safely cross over uh, for takeoff or landing. And uh, there's a couple airports like this. I think Atlanta is the same. There's a couple around the world, but it's always so cool to drive under uh, an airplane taxing, although that's a pretty big airplane there in the picture. I would not want to travel along that road because I would be a right bag of mess. But anyway, uh, Armando, staying with you in the US, do you want to take number eight? I have also flown into this airport. Uh, number eight, Telluride Airport in Colorado. It's just got one runway sitting at 9,000 feet above sea level, making it North America's highest commercial airport. Uh, it's got mountainous surroundings, just like the previous couple. Uh, plenty of uh, factors that don't make this uh, run-of-the-mill landing for pilots who have to navigate everything from the rocky terrain to the fact that the runway sits right atop a plateau next to a drop-off that goes a thousand feet down into the river valley. Now, Nev, I know you like a bit of skiing, so do you want to take number nine? Yes, this is a Corgival uh, airport uh, in, in France, which, uh, uh, I mean, luckily they've cleared the runway of snow, but uh, it doesn't look a very long runway, does it? Uh, but uh, uh, it's a very high up, obviously, so it's got actually an altitude of 6,500 feet, uh, just over 2,000 metres, uh, and offers views and uh, of uh, Mont Blanc and uh, La Grande Casse. And uh, it's the only airport uh, to be kept clear of snow all year round. And number 10, an airport that uh, me and Gemma flew into a few years back, or quite a few years back, actually, for our honeymoon. Uh, this was Velena Airport in the Maldives. We flew in here, actually, with Emirates on a 777. Uh, this is uh, the island on the island of Hulu. Is the main gateway to the island resorts of the Maldives and makes for quite the arrival for passengers considering the island is surrounded by those per- picture-perfect turquoise waters uh, the region is renowned for. Unless you come in from a certain way, which like we did, and there is a huge landfill site just off <laughs> the other side of that oh. runway. Oh, that's but, a shame. Anyway. Anyway, uh, uh, now actually, interestingly enough, Jonathan Warner has sent us a picture while we've been doing that. Uh, he he's disputing that the best airport has to be this. So this is the approach into I want to say Maringen in Switzerland. Is it Miringen? Sorry, Meyer N Gen. 
anyway, that I mean that's t- typical Jonathan Warner, isn't it? It's a stunning we're, photograph that is. We all know we all know how it's pronounced, Matt. We're just letting you try. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much. Yeah, because somebody put me out of my misery, will they, please? <laughs> all right. Well, as that's as that's a military helicopter. Oh dear. I suppose we should technically hand over the show to uh, Armando to introduce the military segment. So, Armando, over to you. Yeah, guys. We're not even going to hit the button this year, this this week. We're just going to go jump right into it. We had some great stories, and I got to admit, our listeners made my job super easy this week because this first story, uh, which is going to be uh, read off by Nev, was brought to us by Ray Davis. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, Ray. Hope you're feeling better as well, Ray. Last time we saw a picture of you, you yeah, were back in hospital again with your your kidney stones. So hope hope things are improving for you. But uh, thanks ever so much for sending in uh, information like this. Always good to hear from Ray. And uh, it, this is on the sevennews.com.au uh, website, uh, where it says. Uh, Black Hawk Down, a Defence Force helicopter makes emergency landing after clipping cruise ship in Sydney Harbour. Uh, it says that the helicopter had to make an emergency landing after an anti-terrorism drill went terribly wrong. Uh, as you can see in the video that I hope Matt's uh, showing, the yes, Black we, we, Hawk helicopter... I couldn't get the rights clip, for the video, unfortunately. Look, oh, right, OK. Uh, clip the mast of a defence-leased Captain Cook cruise ship in Sydney Harbour <laughs> on Wednesday afternoon. The incident damaged the helicopter's rotor blades and it made an emergency landing at Robertson Park in Watson's Bay. Uh, a second Black Hawk followed and landed in the park moments later. Uh, military personnel inside the first helicopter moved into the second one and departed. Uh, no one was injured in the incident, but I bet someone was filling out some paperwork afterwards. Can I just say, I saw a video online of this helicopter in the park after it had landed and they'd shut the doors and they'd gone, and there was no one in authority protecting the aircraft, and there were people, literally people wandering around poking and prodding and oh walking around around the helicopter no one was um i'm sure the accident yeah. investigators will be delighted yeah. about that <laughs> well quite yeah yeah i saw there was a picture of one man taking selfies on top of the yeah helicopter. yeah that was the most Oops. so here, here's my commentary on this one right so and, and and carlos you're exactly right because this isn't just a regular blackhawk if you look at the pictures i think there was a puma or uh, sorry the video there was also a, a puma that was a wingman uh, these are special operations helicopter these are some of australia's most uh, advanced and sophisticated special forces and and you can tell that they were doing this uh, anti-terrorism exercise onto this ship uh, doing uh, fast rope so fast ropes are uh, dangerous to begin with uh, because the aircraft is usually hovering anywhere between 20 and 100 feet up in the air. And the, uh, the guys that are going to jump out are, are literally going to slide down a rope like if you were in gym class, except it's 100 feet down to the ground. <laughs> they were doing this onto a moving boat. And what I, one of the things that I noticed from the video that it was, it was tremendously windy. If you looked at the – there was a windsock on the ship and there were also the, the flag on the ship was – was uh, standing straight up. So it must have been at least a 20, 30 knot wind out there, which probably made for some interesting maneuvering. Also, these special operations forces that do these kinds of assaults onto ships, they over plan every single one of these operations. I mean, they know how wide the deck is. They know how tall the masts are. Um, So this may have just been a, a slight oversight in the planning or, or just the weather conditions, but, uh, but it, 
but they would have planned out how far that mass was from the fast rope area. So it's probably just a, a slight miscalculation on their part. Um, and then, and then some other, other parts is, is a testament to the, to the Blackhawk. So it, it chopped a pretty good chunk of the, the rotors off and it didn't disintegrate. It stayed together. And, uh, I tell you what, you know, when I when I was flying helicopters, nobody wants to ditch in a helicopter. It's just an emotional event. It turns out bad. Usually the aircraft are usually going to hit the water. And unless it's got some kind of flotation system, they are going to flip over. Uh, And then you have to wait. Once the the helicopter hits the water, it's going to flip over on its back. You're going to end up upside down, strapped to your seat. And you have to wait till all the movement stops to get out of that helicopter. Um, So you could tell that as soon as the, the rotor blades clipped that mass, the pilots ensured that all of the operators were on the deck of the ship and they immediately, you know, pointed it towards the, the nearest piece of land, which was that park. Um, and the full video has it coming right in and landing um, a spectacular job by the, by the pilots, uh, despite the miscalculation to put it on the, on the ground so fast um, and without, without hurting anybody on the ground either, which, which could have been a, you know, an issue. Yeah. Okay. It's uh... Oh, we've got a correction from Jonathan Warner. Apparently, he says, "Well, um, just glo- we'll just gloss over the fact that they're uh, NH nineties, shall we?" Yeah. <laughs> I think there were a couple different platforms flying in the in the video. Oh, okay. Oh, there we are. <laughs> you, you guys, fight this out after the show. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, yeah, yeah. Say, we'll have a resolution for it uh, on on next week. Oh, show. don't talk to me about resolutions. <laughs> either Jonathan. <laughs> Or Armando will be apologising. Right, one yeah. or other. I, yes. I'll answer real quick. Micah has a question in the chat room. Isn't the helicopter crew given small five-minute oxygen bottles uh, to use as weight? Yes, you are, but you don't want to use it. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> that was uh, the worst training I ever went through in the military. Uh, we're, romping, we're romping through the military because we're going to lose Armando in about five minutes. So uh, if you want to take the last story, story then, please. All right. Talking about airplanes hitting things on the ground. Two French military jets that flew very close to the ground have struck some electrical lines and cut the power supply to a village in the south of France. Oops. A lovely place for this to happen. Um, <laughs> the incident happened on Wednesday afternoon in the small village of Le Castellet near Manosque. Uh, the two Rafale aircraft had taken off for a nearby airbase on a low-altitude training flight. Uh, the investigation has been opened into the what they are calling a rare incident. Um, a local news outlet had the village's mayor that said it went so low that it made a heck of a din. And then I looked up and saw the second aircraft. It was so low that I said to myself, oh my gosh, it must have gone under the power lines. Um, yeah, the mayor was driving at the time when he saw this. Uh, further down the road, he said he came across some uh, electrical cables hanging on the ground. One of the planes had hit the line and cut it. He immediately called the emergency services and the electricity company. Um, so the fall of the cables caused a fire, which was uh, brought under control, according to La Provence, the newspaper. Uh, the village remained without power for a few hours, and the access road was also um, blocked off. So there was no casualties. The in-fight incident forced the pilot of the aircraft to land safely at the nearby airbase in Orange. Um, and, of course, the Air Force is saying that this was an extremely rare incident, which it is. Thank goodness for that. That's all I have to to say about that. Got a couple of very interesting stories. You're in danger of making the this this whole military thing interesting, Armando. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would secure my position. Oh, huh? Am I off probation yet for the show? No, never. <laughs> 
Never going to happen. <laughs> uh, actually, in, on the subject of uh, interesting uh, bits and pieces, as uh, I know we've now got to say goodbye to you, but um, uh, we need to we we need you to introduce uh, what we're about to play next. You know, uh, so as we've been talking about the last couple of uh, episodes, I've gotten the chance to go up to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is very special. And uh, this video uh, was a uh, Bazaar gave us permission to, to air it out. And it's actually from a good portion of it from their marketing department. But uh, this is uh, me up in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin at the Basler Turbo Conversions. Earlier this month, I was fortunate enough to spend almost two weeks at Basler Turbo Conversions at their facility in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Now, any time that an aviator gets to go to Oshkosh, whether it's for EAA Venture or not, it's a special time. This was no different. Sure, it was the middle of winter, and people don't really go to Wisconsin in the middle of January unless it's to ice fish or to go to Lake Winnebago or to stock up on cheese curds to add some insulation for winter. But I was there on behalf of my company to contribute to an aircraft build and modification. So let me just summarize that the folks at Basler are great people. They rolled out the red carpet for us and every single one of the people working in that facility is just nothing short of an artist. Now what I saw there over those two weeks genuinely rejuvenated my interest in the building, the manufacturing, and the restoration of aircraft, especially these antique aircraft. Now, Basler does this by taking either a commercial DC-3 airframe or a military C-47, which have only slight differences between them. They tear it all the way down to its skeleton. In fact, it actually gets a new skeleton, and the company rebuilds it from the ground up. Uh, I could go on for days, but why don't we just let Basler tell you all about this? The Basler BT-67 started life as a DC-3 and we take it to a whole different level. We do about 45,000 man hours of conversion work and it brings it back to a zero accumulated fatigue airplane with several modifications and it may resemble a DC-3 but underneath it really is a whole different airplane. We build it uh, mostly specific for the customer but every base airplane that rolls out of here rolls out of here as a brand new airplane. The engines that we use is the Pratt Whitney PT6 67R, and they're a brand new engine. And they develop 1,425 horsepower compared to the old original radial engines that developed 1,250 horsepower when they were brand new. My name is Claire Patterson, and I have been chief pilot for many years. I'm now director of operations at Basler. I've been with Basler 16 years and uh, very pleased to be here. I'm, I'd be glad to get old right here. Uh, both the company and the product. I'm big fans of both. Every part that needs to be new is new. The parts that don't need to be new are experienced. <laughs> so every wire, every O-ring, every window is fresh. The engines, uh, PT6 engines, are certainly worldwide the, everyone agrees they're the most dependable engine available. There's a lot of advantages to a tailwheel. For one, taxiing or low-speed operations, the propeller is very high off the ground, so the propellers do not get damaged by rocks and such. On landing, the pilot has full control of the angle of attack of the wing, so you can land at a high speed and choose whether or not to finish the landing. A good example, in extreme crosswinds or slippery 
runways. Uh, you may want to put a lot of weight on the tire for traction, and you can control the traction. And a nose wheel will get in the way of the angles you need. So I'd rather be in charge of the airplane than have a nose wheel tell me what to do. Uh, an experienced airplane is preferable in some new modern roles, quite frankly. And we support the airplane so well, that's another thing I, I would like to mention. We have spare parts and brand new parts that we make. It's, we're very good at support. We don't have a customer out that just bought one airplane. They start out with one and some now have 13 and 14 airplanes to their fleet. They're a workhorse. They fly 20 to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 365 days a year. Because it's such a great platform for any mission uh, that the customer wants to use it for. And we have customers that operate in the, uh, the Sahara Desert. We have customers that operate all the way down in the uh, Arctic and Antarctic. So it can have several different uses. It goes out of here as survey airplanes, troop and cargo, firefighting, gunships. We sell them to our U.S. State Department to use in Afghanistan to haul uh, people in freight. We had a uh, customer that had an accident in Antarctica. We took a whole tail section from another airplane. We took both complete firewall forwards off another airplane and several other landing gear parts and shipped them to Antarctica to put on the airplane to fly at home. And we've also hand carried parts uh, to Antarctica. If they ever need to have a problem for the part, we will hand carry it right to the ice and hand deliver it. Most of our customers come in and uh, see the factory. And once they've been to the factory and seen the process and seen the airplane, they're hooked, they're sold. Most of our customers, I should say, you know, advertise their airplanes over five years or less. My name is Ashley Hazy, and I am an AMT mechanic here at Basler Turbo. I am licensed to basically work on any type of aircraft, and I can do anything from sheet metal to engine work. We have such a great team here. Everyone comes in with a great attitude, smiles on their faces, and we just push through the day. And it, we really have a great team here, and that's what allows us to get these products out for the customers at tip-top shave. And, yeah, we, we really have a great time here at Basler. It's a great place to work. My name is Dwight Dietz, and I am the production supervisor. That uh, design was uh, quite common in the era that this aircraft was originally produced, but it does allow that aircraft, with its large main gear and uh, tail wheel, to land on unimproved airstrips. Uh, it provides uh, great flotation. The aircraft can be equipped with skis for landing uh, in the snow. And uh, it just allows, with the tail wheel, which is 360 degree full castering, allows that aircraft to land on unimproved short strips to spin itself around and allow for it to take off uh, without a great deal of support equipment in, in locations. With it being that large, and with the, the speed of which this aircraft cruises, it allows it to be well suited for uh, scientific research and uh, geological surveying. They tow uh, EM birds for survey. And so what they'll have is a big EM loop antenna that goes all the way around the airplane, powered by a 40 kVA generator. And what they'll do is they'll shoot a signal into the earth, and that signal will come back, be picked up by the birds, come into the airplane, and they have several monitors and computers that take that data and can tell you whether there's oil, diamonds, copper, or any precious minerals in the soil so they can come back and mine that at a later date. The aircraft has such a large payload capability. It, again, its uh, rate of uh, speed when flying 
and uh, its capability to land on unimproved air airstrips. Uh, it is just a very unique aircraft that uh, has not been able to be duplicated. It was never a pressurized airframe, so you don't have that cycling on your airframe that you would in a pressurized aircraft. And it just uh, lends itself well to the longevity that we've seen it uh, to this day. And upon our completion of basically a new aircraft as we can complete it, uh, it allows for it to continue for a great number of years again. You know, the business started in 1957 with uh, Pat and Warren Basler, and then in the uh, mid-80s, we started building the turbine DC-3 because we were an operator of DC-3 aircraft, and we wanted to take it to the next level. So we've been around here doing this type of work since 1989. We have a lot of really good people, a lot of really good craftsmen, and a lot of our people have been here for 20 years or more, so they've got a really good working knowledge of the DC-3. My name is Mark Miller. I'm the fabrication supervisor at Basler Turbo Conversions. I'm in charge of basically doing uh, all the things that are necessary to fabricate the, the new parts that you see here. This isn't an ordinary part. This is an aircraft part. It was made many, many, many years ago. And we have to duplicate it, and sometimes we don't have the, the blueprints to do that. We may find a, a blueprint from Douglas, but it may not give us all the information we need. So in many cases, we have to take and duplicate an original part. So we have to take the part and be able to, uh, in the case of these formers that you see in the background here, we actually have to make a, a piece of tooling so that we can duplicate that. So we have to be able to make that tooling the exact same size as the original part. We have to make it out of the same material and then we have to figure out how we're going to get it bent, how we're going to get uh, inspected, how we're going to get it primed and how we're going to get it to conform uh, so that we can sell it and put it on our aircraft. The future is really our customers because we, again, every customer is different and so they come to us with what they need in an airplane, what their mission is, and then we outfit the airplane and set the airplane for their mission. So as you saw and heard in that segment, these artists take frames, airframes that are 80 years old and produce a zero fatigue airframe for the customers. These planes will continue on to fly for many, many, many years in these specialized roles. Um, it was truly awe-inspiring for me to see the avionics guys working next to the sheet metal team, the upholstery specialists working right next to the composite artists, which is what I call them. Uh, almost everything is manufactured in-house. It would be incredibly expensive for them to order just a few fuel tanks or wing spars or nose panels from an outside manufacturer. That's what makes Basler so special and one of the last remaining small aircraft manufacturers, if not the last that I can think of um, that does everything in-house. So I want to thank the folks at Basler for their hospitality and for letting me live out what is truly a, a childhood dream for me to be in and around DC-3s, uh, especially a new one. I never thought I'd get the chance to do something like that or anything like that. My love of the DC-3 goes all the way back to my childhood in Puerto Rico when my dad was an airline pilot at uh, Puerto Rico International Airlines, or Prinair, um, and their maintenance hangar, which we went to pretty regularly, I think that was also their operations building, was right next to the cargo carriers, Five Star, Toll Air, which I think to this day operate the DC-3. I remember looking at those airplanes as a kid, and, and just that truly fostered my love of what are now considered classic aircraft. So again, 
Thanks to Joe and the team at Bowser for having us. I mean, he he's so humble, isn't he? But he's got like one of the coolest jobs in the entire world, hasn't he? It's it's like almost like we all step up to the table with like bronze, yes. and then Armando walks in with a big old bag of gold. Yeah, every yeah, time. absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, thank you, Armando, for putting that together. Uh, sorry, you're not here to uh, comment. He's got to go off to go and do some actual work, which is uh, <laughs> you know somebody's got to do. He's oh right, okay. He's probably waiting for his meeting to start. Yeah, he's coming he in the chat room. The chat room. Yeah. So we have got some listener feedback. We uh, have this week. Uh, we've got some from Ray haven't we? We have, yes, he said trying to do it. Uh, so, uh, nothing really very particularly exciting, he was just saying that uh, it looks like our Canadian cousins from the Wildcat helicopters are packing up um, as the fire season comes to an end here in Oz, of course, with the bushfires and all that kind of thing. So he's just, sort of, as I say, just fascinating little pictures and stuff here. As they're packing up, ready to, to ship home. Look, it's quite, it's quite cool. So thank you for for sharing uh, that with us. Now, um, squeeze that and squeeze that in the boot. You'll see, Max, Matt. Right. Okay. Uh, probably not. If I, um, I'm honest. Mm. Uh, so um, yeah, thank you. What's coming up on next week's show, Nev? Oh, I'm looking forward to this, I can tell you. Uh, the very popular Rory Ouskerry is coming on our show. Uh, if you're familiar with his work, have a look at his YouTube channel, Rory On Air, where he's just become a commercial helicopter pilot, but he's also flown a lot of flick, uh, fixed-wing aircraft as well. In the past, he was previously a studio manager at uh, BBC up at Media City in Manchester, and he's going to be joining us live on the air uh, next Friday. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to having a chat with Rory. It's going to be a lot of fun, isn't it? Really, looking It's forward wor- to worth that, noting yeah. as well, we don't very often have helicopter pilots on the show, so... This is a this is a fresh one for us again, guys. Yeah, I had a good pilot on the show, so yeah. yeah. Looking, f- yeah. Uh, get your questions in maybe in advance, just so that we can uh, we can brief Rory in advance. As I say, uh, same contact details. You can use the contact form on our website www.plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com is the email address. Uh, the WhatsApp number plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six, and then of course social media as well. Or obviously, if you're here on the day, you can also uh, get in touch using our uh, using the uh, the chat room on our uh, on our YouTube page. And don't forget, if you're going to buy cat food like I will be this weekend, make sure you use our Amazon link on our website (laughs) when you buy your cat food because we do get a little small referral fee from Amazon. It all helps. And uh, also, don't forget our links. If you want to become a patron of the show, uh, you could become a patron of the show through our website. Uh, The links are on there. And if you want to make a one-off donation to the show, uh, you can also do that via the PayPal link on our website, and we would love that. And don't forget the store as well. If you want to be like Matt Newbury and get yourself a nice PTK T-shirt, you can go on our store and purchase yourself one of those and also a PTK coffee mug, which is awesome. Oh, yes, absolutely. So that is where we are going to bring episode 356 to a close. A big thanks again to our guest, Rebecca Dean. Thanks for uh, for you for coming on. Uh, Big thanks to Armando. I know he's not here, but thanks to Armando for all your hard work for the show this week. Big thanks to Nev as well for being with us this week, as always, being awesome. Big thanks to Matt for making sure everything has been working. Barely. And a big thanks as well, not forgetting 
our awesome producer, John, who does a hell of a lot of work in the background while we're all busy working our busy work during the week. So big thanks to John. <laughs> and uh, so from me, Carlos, here in my home studio, from Nev in his glorious Buckinghamshire studios, from Matt in the studio just down the road from me, and from Armando at work. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend and see you all next Friday. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.